Welcome everyone, this is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor, I read a book. I watched a movie. This week we are doing Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. It was just released on Netflix. This is a doozy. This is dense. This is two and a half hours. It is flashy. It is aggressive. It is a uh, history lesson. It is groovy. It is exactly what I want to be covering right now. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was stoked to watch this. It's everything. I, I had a, I had a blast with it. I, I thought it was, it was daring. It was enth- it, it made me enthusiastic. I was like, what's yeah. it gonna do? <laughs> just, just in terms of the cutting, the camera work, all of it. I loved it. Yeah. It was a blast. We'll get into it. Um, but yeah, Spike Lee, who we actually covered. He had made a film called Black Klansman. <laughs> episode five. This is episode 70, so the show is very different now, so you don't have to go back and look and listen to that. But we've been on the air long enough yeah. that he's made an entire other big movie. And that is a lot of, like you mentioned, with Spike Lee's style. And in terms of the timing, he had said in interviews, if you know the process of movies, like this was in development long ago. Yeah. It's being worked, different actors, this and that. They filmed it before coronavirus. It comes out, it was going to go to theaters, was going to be premiered at Cannes Film Festival. None oh, of that's man. happening. So that Netflix was like, well, we'll just put it up, put it and up it at, the, at the qualify. exact right time. Yeah, it, and it, this, it's perfectly timed. This is incredible. Uh, and, and, and now it, it should qualify for uh, Academy Award season. This is the story of four Vietnam vets in modern day, going back to Vietnam to find the remains of their fallen uh, squadron leader and the gold, uh, which was the object of their thought failed uh, mission in Vietnam. Um, so they're going back to get the gold. Um, so this is a movie that kind of crosses a parallel between now and the past. Uh, it goes in crazy segments that change the aspect ratio all over the screen. They change it in any way, every way possible. And the thing that is that I thought was particularly just stand out about these sequences that take place during the Vietnam War, they're shot on film and they're mm-hmm. in there. They're really there. It feels low. It feels almost low budget because you don't see sequences filmed like this anymore. Mm. Um, I want to see more action sequences done with this kind of just thick aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was gorgeous. I haven't seen something like this in a long time. One of the stylistic things that I saw being praised, which is interesting because there was another film, The Mm -hmm. Irishman, that tried to do something. There is a big past and present portion with these characters' lives, but Spike Lee chose to use the cast, which is around 60 years old for all of them, and they play their 20-year-old selves with no makeup or the crazy CGI rigs and cameras and all that stuff. It's it's used for thematic effect, also to save money but like the fact is they're the same people it is eerie the Mm -hmm. way they use that it is such a a beautiful decision so much at the core of the story is going back to find the remains of their falling squadron leader um so he's coming you know he's ghostly he he hovers over the whole film without Mm -hmm. being there with them so when you see these characters not changing if you know uh, delroy rindo clark peters norm lewis isaiah uh, whitlock jr when they're playing against these are all older the older actors playing against chadwick boseman who is black panther um <laughs> he's plays norman the fallen squadron leader so he's very young you know fit everything and then you have the the other four who mm-hmm. are old in the in modern day the present time and in the past it only elevates the norman character chadwick boseman's character to this really ghostly ethereal character that just lingers over the entire thing and it's done just with yeah they're going to play the same they are the same people look how much they've aged he stayed the same what happened to him Mm -hmm. and it's just right there on the screen without being you know it's directly brought to your attention without ever saying a word that's the beauty of cinema yeah 
We'll get into the book in a little bit, but I just wanted to make mention that Spike Lee had the actors read the book or at least portions of it. Yeah. And uh, I know specifically in an interview with Delroy Lindo that he read the whole thing for his character to get a sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. The book is... And we'll talk about what's fictional and, and what's not in relation to the story. Yeah, but tell me about the book. A, I don't think people really, a lot of people don't even realize there is a book. The book is called Bloods, Black Veterans of the Vietnam War and Oral History. And it covers 20 interviews with black veterans of the mm-hmm. war. It reminded me a lot of Voices from Chernobyl, which was right. the Chernobyl thing, and which was our 18th episode, which was everything. a lot of heavy interviews about what happened, the aftermath. In terms of who made this thing, we've been mentioning Spike Lee co-written by Kevin Wilmot, who also wrote Black Klansman with him. They're both professors. Kevin Wilmot is at Kansas and Spike Lee is at NYU. Oh, I didn't even... even Because there is such a historical educational element to their works and taking historical things. I I mean, uh, Spike Lee's been going that direction, but uh, just it, he's, he's very much in the teacher role. Mm -hmm. He wants to (laughs) reframe the American history narrative and he is taking us to school. And that's very much what this film sets out to do. I think it's pretty successful. If you're, if you're willing to press play, Uh, it takes you on a ride. In an interview, he said, I come from a long line of educators. And a quote that he said is, if the younger generation does not know something, it's because the older generation did not teach them. Mm, so he really takes that yeah. personal responsibility yeah. to heart, which is amazing. And you see that amazing. throughout the film. Yeah. And he's so proud now in what's going on in America, saying the younger generation is stepping up, and I'm proud of them. And I yeah. see people saying Black Lives Matter, and it's not a black face. Yeah. In terms of the script, he's friends with Oliver Stone, the director, mm-hmm. and it was originally written in 2013 with Oliver Stone to direct by some other oh, people, okay. and it was not black soldiers in Vietnam. What? It was for white guys. What? So then when Oliver Stone dropped, Spike Lee took it over, completely changed it, made it about that, but the just the premise, he's like, well, this is what it really should be about. Right. Last little bit in terms of the styling of it. The characters, all the five bloods and the son who comes into the picture. Yes. A bit of Spike Lee's interest in music. All the characters are the names of the musical group, The Temptations, and their producer. Oh, no way. So that's the first names (laughs) of all of them. Oh, man. And they were responsible for psychedelic soul as a genre The Temptations were. That is crazy But it's great that that, that their names are are all the names from that group. I had no idea. All this this texture in it, and just, yeah, Yeah. you know, that's not even on the screen, you know, you're not really, I I would never, that's amazing. That's so cool. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Spike Lee and then some of the stuff that he's put into this film, mm-hmm. because I didn't know much about Spike Lee. Yeah. Born in Atlanta, moved to Brooklyn as a kid, went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Clark, Atlanta University, and then did graduate work at NYU, all wow. in relation to communications and film. Right. Very well versed in film, knows all of the classics, yeah. knows the language of film. In 1985, worked on his first feature film called She's Gotta Have It. Had a budget of $175,000. He shot it in two weeks. When it was released the next year, it grossed $7 million wow. in the U.S. Wow. That's really what took him off. Then, I guess maybe what most people would know him for in 89 is film Do the Right Thing. Right. Nominated for Academy Award for Original Screenplay. Right. Very prescient to our time. I don't know if you're familiar with the, with I the have, story at all. I have not seen it. I'll admit it on air. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Uh, I have not either. It is about police brutality, inequality in 
black neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods and in an interesting sort of turn of events, I guess, uh, protests, uprisings, whatever, you know, yeah. different terminology mean different things, civil unrest, all of that stuff. And then it's funny because that's sort of the question of the title is do the right thing right. because this character, Radio Rahim, gets killed by a police officer and the main character who is Spike Lee the question is, is he doing the right thing mm -hmm. by potentially inciting this uprising? And uh, Spike Lee, in an interview, he was like, it's funny because no black person has ever asked me, well, did he do the right thing? Was that, what he, you oh, know, oh, it's only oh, ever oh. the white people that are confused by it. And he purposely kept his character in do the right thing to be just this uh, non-active, just passive watching things. Right. And it still affects him, but it's like that immediately is what black audiences could relate to is that character and white audiences are the ones asking the question because they don't right. understand yeah. the entirety of that situation. <laughs> it's like, this is, this is indicative of the issue. Yeah. And he got a lot of guff when it came out because he was like, oh, are, is, is this going to incite black audiences to rebel and revolt and Spike Lee is like that's that's, that's very think. offensive that's weird, yeah that's incredibly offensive to think that's that all. to think that these audiences could not what? sit in a theater like other people like yeah like what, what an absurd thing but that was his big movie you're gonna rile them up like, yeah. what <laughs> yeah he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't rile up white people <laughs> The downside was, even though he was nominated, Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture that year, which he was like, that mm -hmm. hurt even more than, because it's just his proposing yeah. stereotypical right. elements of race. And my movie, which now a lot of people are like, oh yeah, he should have been nominated, right. he should have won. Like this was I see way in the yeah. moment. In 1993, he began to teach at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. So that's how long he's been teaching there. I didn't. I just didn't realize he'd been there on tenure there for that long. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, twenty seven years. Yeah. Oh my god. I was like, yeah, maybe in the last like decade, maybe two, maybe. Yeah. The tops. <laughs> like, that's actually pretty incredible. Yeah, he's I had been no in idea. It. And then Black Klansman, like I said, was the most recent thing he had done before this in twenty eighteen. It was nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Director, and he won the Best Adapted Screenplay right. with Kevin Wilmot, who wrote this. He says his research uh, is is never ending. Um, mm -hmm. I watched an interview saying with it, you know, every project he does, you know, the moment that it comes across his table, he is in history books, he is watching documentaries, he is on the internet scouring to immerse himself in the context, the culture of the time period, just mm -hmm. trying to get a, a feel for what it was like to live and breathe in the in the moment. Yeah, um, he wants you to know so much, mm -hmm. um, and you feel every ounce of work he's put in just to understand what he's talking about because yeah. it's hard it's really hard to under, you know like he's he wasn't there he didn't fight the you know the vietnam war mm -hmm. you know they they held screenings with uh vietnam black vets mm -hmm. before they locked picture on this to actually get input from them that's how in the, how much he wanted it to be authentic yeah. to what it was to really tell the story because you you can't say oh i'm gonna tell the story and then run off in it and it be something wildly different it's like he wanted he wanted to impress the real black vietnam veterans with this movie with yeah. this story to really set the record straight yeah or at least offer another there there are multiple people on this planet there are multiple stories on this yeah. planet there's not just one history this is the history for black vets in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. 
and there was nothing to honor that. There's almost especially nothing. in film. There's almost yeah. nothing. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the stuff that was true or was not true, mm-hmm. or at least brought from the book and real life in some way. So the landmine scene, mm-hmm. character steps in a landmine won't explain what happens, but it is in the book. Somebody's experience ha- describes exactly how they figure out that situation that happens in the movie oh, really? as happening in real life. It is maybe fabricated because this person's authenticity is brought into question because other people have, it's almost more like an urban myth gotcha. of the Vietnam War because other soldiers have also said that as right. something that happened with oh, them. Just trying to but save somebody off of a mine. Yeah. You know, you know, but it's not, still cool that yeah. that got featured in the movie as a part of the collective experience of this war. Right. I mean, every element of this is something that, something real mm-hmm. or at least part of the of the legend part yeah. of the myth part of the other the lost history yeah um it, it's an echo it's not saying this, uh, you know it it's not commenting on that directly it's an echo these people are doing a, a kind of parallel thing mm-hmm. you know that that's all it's meant to say yeah. it's like well it's not even saying it did happen <laughs> it's it's just meant to reference it yeah another reference was this vietnamese woman who was dubbed hanoi hannah and she was a real northern vietnamese radio Propagandist. This I was very interested yeah. in. The, in several instances in the uh, Vietnam timeline, you get this radio host speaking directly to the black vets yeah. there. So I was that very, did happen. I was hoping you would bring this. Yeah, up. yeah, she was. She was encouraging soldiers to go home or to say, "Why are you fighting for this?" Because they know that the civil rights movement is They're happening in you. tandem. Yeah. And what are they doing out here? So that was used by the Northern Vietnamese wow. government to compel soldiers to not be involved. In terms of the premise of the whole movie, there's no evidence to the CIA paying Vietnamese people in gold bars that they then found. But there were Vietnamese who aided the CIA in destroying supply lines and various other things. There were operations by the CIA. There were dirty operations. This is just a pontification of, you know, what else they did not know about. Exactly. (laughs) The whole idea is that nobody knows about this. That's why it's, you know, we can't find a direct reference to it. And, you know, so it's, it's just plausible deniability in the scale of what was happening there. There were shady things happening there we don't know that something like this didn't happen yeah there is one other film that addresses black vietnam veterans Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because it is also based on this book bloods and the film is called dead presidents came out in 1995 it's based on the real life of haywood t kirkland who one this is one of his profiles and it's after the vietnam war and he turns to a life of crime and this actually happened and he got jail time for it And there was a film that was made based on that. It's by the Hughes brothers who also did Menace to Society. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, So this is that's really the only high profile major film in regards to what this is like, because like you said, it's like, why are we here? What are we doing? And then also every Vietnam veteran was chastised or ridiculed or given guff. But 10 times over for the black veterans who came back, who missed the civil rights issues or were given even less ability to recoup their life after the fact. So he was one of them in that film Dead Presidents was made about him. In regard to the profiles, Taylor's mentioning the the profiles that come up in the book. They do this in the film in an interesting way. When uh, these characters are talking and trying to encourage each other or just telling stories or relating to each other, they bring up all these characters of black history. Mm-hmm. Um, and when this happens in the film, when these people are mentioned, either mentioned or they're showing pictures of people, the screen will flash to a still picture of whatever, either if it's on that person's phone, it's just a black box, just that still picture like you were in a museum yeah. uh, viewing a piece. 
Uh, and it does that uh, time and time again. When anytime it's referencing some sort of, it can be characters in the story, but most of the time it's real historical black uh, figures saying, "Like, look at this. You should know this. You should know this." <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's really in your face, and it, like, it, it, like gives details in the bottom of exactly who you are, what this picture is from, what the date. You yeah. know, like you need to know this information. There's a problem. <laughs> That you don't know who these people are. Yeah. The people in the in the in the movie know who these people are. That's black culture. That's been going around. <laughs> That's the thing we've been missing. Yeah. That's what this film is trying to do. Is trying at least you know if yeah, I'm if I'm pressing the button on it, it's trying to impart maybe the party we've all. There's been a reason on. you. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason you clicked play is because you don't know this and you want to know it. Yeah. Or you are Hopefully. like. Yes, please. Yes, keep or you've been hungry <laughs> for it. Yeah, that's yeah. what this is for. So the author of this book, Bloods, which, like I said, came out in '85, covers interviews with black veterans of the war. The author, Wallace Terry, that's been his life goal forever: is to uh -huh. say, here are these voices. Yeah, here, just like, to amplifying these yeah. voices to get them he, out there. Yeah, done so much, can't name it all, but journalist, news commentator, author. The book Bloods was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Wow, when it came out, his second book which if you're interested in this, but in a different tack related to his life, it's called Missing Pages, Black Journalists of Modern America. It was published posthumously in 2007. It's 19 interviews wow. with black men and women who are pioneers in journalism. Oh, so the missing story cool. of who are the who are the black Americans involved in all the news stories yeah. around the world that you didn't even know because yeah. they didn't get all the, the All the black journalists you never heard of that yeah. didn't get the recognition. Yeah, that God, were just man. as involved in shaping news. Yeah which is what his life was. So if you're interested in that, that I'll post a link, post links to everything, but that is a, another book worth Fantastic. checking out. Fantastic. But as far as him and his life, he went to Brown University. He was the first black editor-in-chief of an Ivy League newspaper. Wow. So he, yeah. from the very beginning, yeah. like, that's what he's into. Blazing um, that trail. He snagged his first national story while still in college when there was a photograph of him shaking hands with the segregationist governor of Arkansas when he was doing a piece. Really? It made the front page of the New York Times oh and then around the God. world. So Washington Post offered him a job. Wow. From that. Wow. Because <laughs> it was That's such, amazing. A, crazy, That's it was such cool. a crazy story. So he joined the Washington Post at age 19 and then, <laughs> still not even done with college, God. but finished. He did uh, graduate studies at University of Chicago and then also did graduate studies in international relations at Harvard. Yeah. So then he worked for USA Today, originated the op-ed page for USA Today, Wow, was the founder really? of that. He covered the civil rights movement for the Washington Post, wow. and then he joined Time Magazine in 1963, and he was the first black Washington correspondent for mainstream media and the first black news magazine reporter. Man, oh my gosh, and I never heard him. Yeah. I've never heard about him until now. Yeah, so he is- it's a crime. It's a crime. But yeah. <laughs> it really No, that's what that's what this is all about. Yeah. That's what yeah. this whole movie is about is that all, all of those profiles that it flashes and everything that that didn't even make it into the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh we need to know these things. We need to be acquainted with these things. They're just as much our, our true history. Yeah. And we need to be embracing it. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Yeah. I'm ashamed. So now get he's 29 years old. <laughs> After all of that, he left for Vietnam where he became the deputy bureau chief for time, and he was the first full-time black war correspondent for the mainstream yeah. media. So now he's actually out in the field. This is what the book is based on. Is So he went there first in 1967, and what's interesting is the army seemed to be the most integrated institution in American society. 
It was oh. not segregated. Yeah. It was desegregated before the rest of the country. So he went in 67. He actually reported personally to President Johnson. And at that time, he said most black soldiers supported the war. They were agreeing with, yes, it was stopping communism. Yeah. He goes back for a two-year assignment, and he had seen that sort of the careerist army people had left, and now there's new black soldiers that are there who yeah. have been drafted, and they are they were three steps removed from joining these civil rights marches, but they're going over to Vietnam oh, now, gosh. and it's a very different attitude. Still loyal to America, but but conflicted and confused, yeah. and yeah. not you know well, very there's, much. There's, a, there's trouble at home. Wait, where am I going? Yeah, and he's saying their patriotism demands a special salute because their loyalty stood a greater test yeah. than any soldier. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So then he comes back. A quote from his wife. She was saying, "Getting this book published became an obsession. Sat with us at the dinner table, watched the evening news with us, went with us to the movies, to church." 13 years, they had uh, sent the manuscript to 100 publishers oh and gotten rejections. Oh, my God. Um, eventually, it gets put out. And like I said, he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He continues- What year did it come out? 85. 85. He had continued to teach afterwards. He was appointed the first Frederick Douglass Professor of Journalism at Howard University. He served on numerous national boards and committees addressing veterans' issues. And then he died in 2003. Wow. And like I said, his second book about black journalists in America yeah. was published in 2007. An wow. interesting thing that I saw that Gosh. sort of colored his whole life from an interview, he had talked about two young men from his hometown. He grew up in Indianapolis, hmm. the Jarman brothers, and they were killed in Europe during World War II, and their sacrifice was ignored by everyone except their family. But he knew about them from his hometown, and he was like, all these black patriots who give the best of their lives in the Vietnam War should not be forgotten. Yeah. That's what the book is about, and that's what most of his life was devoted to, was making those voices heard. It's interesting. You know, there's a whole genre of film, war film, mm -hmm. and now looking at it and, you know, having watched just watched The Five Bloods, it's a genre that seems to be looking in such a narrow direction. Yeah. It seems that there are so many stories. Number one, it's a big genre, but there seems to be so few so few real diverse stories in yeah. it. You could have a whole parallel history of war in the United States, just film his, you know, it, yeah. you could have the equivalent of Saving Private Ryan or it, 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 Iwo Jima or the countless war films. I mean, why are there not, why is there not Spike another had, yeah. black uh, at least Vietnam uh, <laughs> film, or, yeah. but but good lord, it, this is not that it wasn't just Vietnam. Yeah, uh, well, we'll talk. Where about are that these movies? Yeah, yeah. Like, where are these? Where is this history? It, 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 like I said, we've been looking in one direction. Yeah, I'll post a link to an interview. Spike Lee was asked that question in regards to this film. What you're asking? Why? Yeah. Is why is this not happening? And he's like, first of all, it is going to start happening. Yeah. Second of all, it's because the gatekeepers, which I think we've yeah. mentioned before yeah. on this yeah. podcast, like Definitely. there are like you need more, more different people in rooms in Hollywood <laughs> yeah. approving this, saying that's racist, that's homophobic, that doesn't speak to the population, that degrades the Native American population. Like we can't do these. too many looking just about these types of people. We've yeah. got to do other types of stories. But if you don't have those people in the room, there can't be somebody who's saying, hey, maybe yeah. we should think about this yeah. or maybe we should approve this thing instead of that thing. And I think in a Spike Lee interview, I'm paraphrasing or 
generalizing this, but is asked like, well, what should we do about this? And he's like, that's not a question to ask black people to figure out. Right. <laughs> it's like on you right. guys, like it's every, you're like, right. It's it's your responsibility. They're they're they're, to- they're doing the work. They're screaming. They're they're screaming. The, these projects are waiting yeah. in the wings. Like he said, they will start having you know, these, these uh, black led war movies, but all multi genre and generational. Mm-hmm. These projects exist. And if you've been wondering why Hollywood has run out of ideas and everything's remakes, <laughs> that's not true. You're yeah. looking in the wrong direction there. Yeah, Hollywood has got scared pockets. Uh, and, and afraid to take risk and investment. And until recently, it wasn't thought to be a good risk to bet on black films. Mm-hmm. That is what we've got to attack. And that's just one part of this entire movement. This is one teeny part of it is the entertainment industry. Yeah. So I will say in regards to if this story interests you and you wanted to check out the book, please do. But I also found Wallace Terry wrote and narrated for PBS a segment of their frontline show. It's a 45-minute thing. It's called The Bloods of Nam. Yes. It's available on YouTube. It's amazing. It yes. doesn't profile all 20 of these people in video form, but it does give maybe four or so yeah. interspersed with various other historical pieces oh, and whatnot. But it's it's amazing, and I would highly recommend- Free on YouTube. Free on YouTube. Minutes. Check it out. Gets a lot of the, the profiles down. It'll be in our show notes. There is also a- he wrote and narrated the only documentary recording from the Vietnam battlefields. It's called Guess Who's Coming Home. It was put out as an LP oh, in 72, wow. founded on YouTube. Oh, um, cool. It's incredible because he's actually, you can hear people in the background in the barracks. He's just out yeah. on the front lines. And these are very uncensored, raw probably would get in a lot of trouble if you knew who these people were at the time right. kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But he put it out and he's like, this is how black Vietnam soldiers are feeling and what's going on. And I just wanted to share with you all a clip from it. I'll post a link, of course, to it so you can listen. It's another 45-minute thing with all these different takes on it. But there was one where this soldier, is he asks him about Confederate flags, and it just was chilling because it's so much in relation to what's going on now. And I will warn you, there's a bunch of language and swearing and whatnot, but I just would like to play it because it is, it's like, oh, this could be right now where he's talking about what are these icons of a troubled past that people are unwilling to recognize. uh, A forgotten past. Yeah. So here's that. Have you seen any Confederate flags? That's all we got in my company. Got one up in the holy room. You talking about Confederate flags? What's a Confederate flag anyway? I thought the flag with the with the cross, stars and shit like that was American flag. What's American flag look like? All you see is Confederate flags draped in the back of trucks, man, everywhere. Yet and still they got a crumb that can come down and say, I want all this black bumper stickers off of these walls. We don't have no room for militants in this army. Have any room, matter of fact, we don't have room for black people. All we got are colored boys in this army. This burns me up, man. I mean, of all things to have over here, man, why a Confederate flag? As a matter of fact, I think it ought to be some goddamn Lord of fucking outlawing them goddamn flags, man. Fucking Confederacy is gone, man. Do you really know what the Confederacy did, man? He tried to rise up and fucking fuck up the whole goddamn country, man. Just over a little goddamn things like, like slaves, man. <laughs> They want to secede from the Union because they can't make fucking human beings work, whip them with fucking whips, kill them, sell them on markets, treat them like fucking animals. They want to just fuck up everything because they can't treat a human being like an animal, man. 
that's really senseless, man. And then they let them still run around with those silly ass flags. What did you think about America? That could be this week. Yeah. I think NASCAR just banned the Confederate flag at all of its events, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's having a rolling effect. There's more of that happening, but it's kind of ridiculous that we waited until 2020 to think about maybe doing that. It's <laughs> and kind this of ridiculous guy saying that it. like the yeah. Georgia state flag had the Confederate flag built into it until recently, and that even the repurposed version of it is still based off of an old iteration of the Confederate flag. That needs to change. Georgia's not the only state. It's pretty ridiculous when you, we start thinking about well, we did we conquered racism, we hired you know we elected Obama, all that crap. That's 1971 talking at you. Yeah, it sounds like it happened this week in Minneapolis. And you can imagine the frustration. This guy is saying this in Vietnam 50 <laughs> years ago <laughs> across the world, and still has no agency. We're surrounded by people who shouldn't have any agency in the country they're in, but somehow feel confident enough to take away his agency yeah. while they're there trampling all over that country. So this clip made me realize I know absolutely nothing and am ashamed to not know anything about the history of black Americans in war. Because I didn't even yeah. I didn't even realize, oh, there was an issue with the fact that people are just having cross burnings outside their tents and putting up Confederate flags in Vietnam while they're fighting in the war. I want to see a parallel uh, Lieutenant Dan from mm-hmm. uh, Forrest Gump. Yeah, uh, there's the comedic kind of jump cut montage where he says that every like war has had a, a man of my family die. And it's like, yeah. where I want to see that. I want to see the equivalent Lieutenant Dan black version to show yeah. us just how how long black people have been dying for this country since the very beginning. Well, I can, yeah, hopefully I can illuminate some of that. So Crispus Attucks is somebody that they mention in this movie. Directly referenced in the film. It has one of those beautiful museum profile pictures that comes up. But this is something that I I definitely learned in school and we need to reiterate it because this is very, very important. So I'm glad that that Spike Lee is kind of putting a stake in this and not letting people forget that black people have been dying for this country since the beginning. He is the first American killed in the American Revolution. A black man. Period. (laughs) Yeah, the first person to die for America. Period. He may have even also been a runaway slave. The situation behind it, it was 1768. British soldiers were sent to Boston. There was a colonial unrest, which had led to a spate of attacks against them. Hmm. Of course, sending troops, as we can see from the protest, does not reduce tensions. It Mm. escalates them. Yeah. This is now 1770. They've been in Boston for a while. And colonialists confronted this guy who had chastised a boy for complaining that somebody didn't pay a bill for their barber outing. And so townspeople and another regiment gathered. The colonials were throwing stuff at the soldiers. A group of men, including Crispus, approached when a soldier was struck with a piece of wood. Some people say done by him. Other people say he was just leaning on a stick. Soldiers opened fire, and he was the first one to die. It sounds like, again, it sounds like it happened last last week. Crazy. It sounds like it's. I just watched it on video. So now the Revolutionary War is happening. Black soldiers served in the northern militias from the outset, not necessarily in the Continental Army, though. But Lord Dunmore, who was a British officer, created an Emancipation Proclamation in 1775, saying that 
If you were a runaway slave and you fought for the British, you would get freedom. So in response, because of manpower shortages, Washington lifted the ban on black enlistment in the army. Like I said, they were in the militias, but not in the army in January of 76. So there was an all black unit that was formed in Rhode Island and in Massachusetts. Also, many slaves were promised freedom for serving in lieu of their masters in the U.S. Army. Interesting. Um, so thousands of black soldiers, slaves as well as free, fought in the Continental Army. Yeah. And some of the numbers, so around 200,000 soldiers and militia fought for America. Right. Which would mean for the amount of black soldiers that fought, it would be approximately 4% of patriots in the Revolutionary War, which is an insane number even to begin with. Yeah, thinking that whole 4%, 4%. Yeah. But- the odd thing is the average length of time in service for an African-American soldier was four and a half years, which was eight times longer than a white soldier. So if you do the math, they comprised a quarter of the strength in terms of man hours. Oh, man. So 25% of the time fought was fought by black soldiers in the Continental Army. Wow. I've never heard that broken down like that. Yeah. The next big engagement historically, the Civil War, approximately... 186,000 black soldiers, which was almost the uh, amount the that amount fought, the, that of fought the total the that fought in the Revolutionary War, War including 94,000 former slaves from southern states. A particular infantry unit, the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, in 1863, it was an all-black regiment, which consisted of more than 1,000 people. Frederick Douglass helped establish this particular regiment. No way. And the big battle that they fought in was at Fort Wagner. So that was wow. where the first black soldier earned a Medal of Honor from that battle. And there is a film that this is yeah. from, and it's the 1989 film Glory. Right. The West Expansion. The army is called to quell problems, problems in quotes, with the right. Native Americans. There were several infantry regiments 5,000 black soldiers, or 10% of the total force, guarded the Western frontier from 1860 to 1890. Mm -hmm. And they fought so bravely during a battle with Cheyenne warriors in 67. It's contested if that's where this nickname came from, but they were called Buffalo Soldiers. Mm -hmm. Then that became the moniker for black soldiers. Yeah. I found a crazy, crazy... Yeah, because I didn't know anything about it. At this point, the West Expansion, 1860s, the first black woman in the army. What? Cathay Williams enlisted as William Cathay. Oh illegal my, to have a women. Black Mulan. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> she said she was 22 years old. She was described as five foot nine with black eyes, black hair, black complexion. Said she was fit for duty and. She man. <laughs> was assigned to the 38th Infantry and traveled throughout the West. That's did everything incredible. everybody else did. I want a movie about that. Yeah. That's a whole movie. That'd be great. So yeah, that's Cathay Williams, first black woman in the army in the 1860s. 1860s. Had to pretend to be a man oh to my fight. Gosh. We move on to the Spanish-American War. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. The 10th Cavalry was an all-black cavalry unit that accompanied him hmm. and came to the rescue at San Juan Hill, which no people way, don't really. realize. Advancing under heavy enemy fire, firing as they marched. After the battle, a Rough Rider soldier was quoted as saying, if it hadn't been for the black cavalry, the Rough Riders would have been exterminated. Man, that's incredible. That's staggering. Yeah. We go back to the Buffalo Soldiers, the 92nd Infantry Division in World War I and World War II. This was the first all-black combat unit to be shipped overseas. During World War One, what's crazy is 
there was no official combat role for Americans' black soldiers in World War I. Mm -hmm. So they responded to France's request, and they were assigned to the French army. Really? Yeah. So they didn't even fight for America. Good Lord. In World War I. The Germans dubbed this unit the Hellfighters because during the 191 days of duty, no men were captured and no ground was taken. Really? Yeah. Man. World War II, a lot of infantry divisions yeah. and various divisions, yeah. but still segregated. The biggest one that people might know about is the Tuskegee Airmen. Right. And I think there's been a couple pieces of media done, but nothing of any major esteem or accolade. I think um, Red Tails yeah. is about that. It's yeah. the Lucasfilm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I yeah. think Cuba Gooding Jr. And the, uh, but I, I think it's riddled with cliches yeah, and feel-goodery and it, isn't... Uh, it had... It, they wanted to do... You know, they wanted to do a good job, but I, I don't know if it was particularly successful. But that Red Tails is about the all-black uh, fighter pilots in, in World War II. Yeah. They were uh, known because they never lost an escorted plane to the enemy during the course of World War II, and they carried out hundreds of missions, which maybe is contested in history, but the fact is they were way better than everybody else in terms of the rest of the squadrons and fighters. So now, desegregation of all the U.S. armed forces by Harry S. Truman in 48. Mm. Although if we've learned anything, signing a bill doesn't mean (laughs) it's done. Right. So the Korean War- And we solved it. (laughs) Check. Um, I'll just sign this piece of paper and I've solved it. (laughs) So the Korean War, uh, there were 50 members of the all-black 24th Infantry Regiment who were falsely accused of going AWOL, absent without leave. Now, keep in mind, I said all-black. They still didn't integrate the troops even after the thing was signed. They were still like, oh, well, we're going to have this infantry here and this infantry there. Well, Um, I wonder if some of them wanted that, too. I don't know that, you know, if they've if some of these infantries, I don't know how it works. So please forgive my ignorance. But like maybe you do grow a sense of pride in your particular Mm -hmm. unit and your and and I maybe this is just pontification. But if you were like a proud black infantry unit, you might want to after so long, you might want to stay together. Yeah. Uh, that might act, even be safer mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. There's pro- That's probably pretty complex, and these but are, it's interesting yeah. that it didn't di- diversify quicker. Yeah. But I can understand why it wouldn't in yeah, a way. Yeah, for sure. Especially yeah. if you realize like, hey, yeah. things aren't going to change. These are career yeah, exactly. servicemen who have been in the army for a while. <sighs> um, Thurgood Marshall said in regards to this trial, which was complete nonsense, one of the men produced two witnesses stating that he had not gone AWOL, a major in the medical corps and a lieutenant in the nurse corps that said he was at the base hospital the day he was supposed to be AWOL. He was convicted and given life imprisonment. Oh my God. Oh my God. So just a mess. Then we come back to what we've been talking about, which is the Vietnam War. Typically, one-year tours. So this is in, t- in terms of coming back into society. Yeah. So there's no massive demobilization. It's like people are coming back piecemeal, not even with their units, but just by themselves, dropped off in their army fatigues in their neighborhood. There was one guy from the book who was saying, I I went back, went to my house, yelled up to the window, my family had moved. Like I I wasn't even in the right neighborhood. Uh, What that does to you as a person. Where do you go? What do you do? What is your next thought then that when you think, okay, I'm going, you know, because you're not going inside. Yeah. That's, I mean, really put yourself there. And like you had mentioned in terms of was this something conspicuous or not that was targeting black Americans in regards to right. what are being the number, over there? What, you know, yeah. what, 
what are the numbers? And isn't an accident. So at the time, in, yeah, at the time in the U.S., African Americans were 11 percent of the population, but accounted for 22 percent of the deaths in the Vietnam War. Good God! There was a project called Project 100,000, where they were trying to get that many people into the Vietnam War. Once it once they realized, yeah. like, oh, we're going to have to draft. We're going to have to get this going. Right. So that was when the draft was hit, and they got 240,000. But of those draftees, 40% were black. Oh, my God. So it's not comparable with what the population distribution was. No. They were also on the draft board, the people responsible for drafting. There were no black people on the draft boards in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, or Arkansas. Accident. (laughs) (laughs) Get right. Get real. Come on. Also, in terms of assigning, so it was like, oh, you're going to be drafted, but maybe you'll just be a clerk or maybe you'll be running supplies. 23% of troops on the ground in Vietnam were black, which is disproportionate to (laughs) what they should be in the front lines taking fire. And like I said, in regards to the clip we posted after the MLK assassination, some white troops wore KKK robes. One compound flew the Confederate flag for three days. Oh, my God. And then they were like, you have to, you know, black soldiers, like you got to take that down. After the fact, black veterans are twice as likely to experience PTSD, 40%. And this speaks to the book that I read as well, much less likely to write memoirs. There was a paper that noted 400 memoirs by participants in the Vietnam War. Seven were by African-American veterans, which percentage-wise is less than 2%, despite the higher percentages of actually being involved. Well, I bet bet most of these people grew up with a sense of having no real agency, a feeling of voice whatsoever. So most of them, it probably never even occurred that they had that option to tell their own story. Yeah. That's kind of a tragedy in its own right. And that's a mindset we've got to attack in this country, realizing that we have been boxing out opportunities from certain groups of peoples and and that this works a certain type of way. We set up this system and we have kept a lot of people out the door. Yeah. Uh, We see it. We're seeing it pop up all over in every aspect, everywhere we look here. If we're willing to look at it, that's. That's what we're tackling here. We've got to address this. Yeah. And I own my ignorance of being like, oh, this didn't apply to me, but it it obviously does. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, it should apply to you too. Everywhere (laughs) all over the world, people are realizing, hey, everybody's a person. I mean, it's staggering to me. Like, Sometimes I find myself like, well, it's 2020. Why haven't we solved cancer? It's like, oh, because we probably like trapped that person in some horrible job and they died like without health care. You know, like, you know, like we probably never afforded that opportunity to the child who was meant to solve cancer. You know, those types of things. I have to realize, why isn't society in a place where it feels like it should be by this time? It's like, oh, because we have been keeping ourselves down mm-hmm. by dividing ourselves yeah. for what <laughs> money? Yeah, I don't know. It was excuse cra- me. Yeah, no, no, no. One of the one of the guys, and I, I highly recommend. Please, if you liked what we're talking about or are more interested, the book exists. There's links to it, but also if you don't want to read. Hence the title of this show. There is a 45-minute documentary by the same guy who had the book and a 45-minute yeah. album <laughs> by the same guy who had the yeah. book. So either watch yeah. or listen. All of it. Um, we got to afford these opportunities 
to to these artists. We've got to be able to tell these stories. We've got to acknowledge the stories that are out there that haven't been acknowledged. We've got to shine a light on this stuff. This is our history. This is not the just. This is ever. This is our history. This is American history. Yeah. Uh, to pretend that it's not is racist. <laughs> like we have got to embrace our full history as a country. We cannot continue walking like horses with blinders on. Mm-hmm. So to all that, we're going to be tracking right along, learning more, experiencing more, becoming more involved. If you would like us to cover anything or there is something out of the blue, even if it's not related to... Yeah, it doesn't have to be happening this week. If it's something in this material, any ideas that have sparked from this conversation, uh, we're more than willing to hear your suggestions. There's a great chance that it could end up being an episode, we promise. We want this to be an open conversation. We've got to start using these kinds of dialogues and making them into real dialogues. This kind of stuff can't wait. I'm so glad we were able to do this this week. It's so timely, so relevant, so perfect for right now. I can't urge you enough. Go to Netflix. Check this out. Check out all our links. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, reach out to us at IlliteratePod on Instagram. Send us a message. Let us know what you would like to hear more. We're very excited to hear from you. Thank you, guys. See you next week.